0: Show you a better way. You know Hi, folks. This is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, October 29th, 2014, uh, and this is episode 1456 of the Survival Podcast. It's just me today, just Jack, and uh, we're going to have a chat with Jack type of episode. I'm going to talk about all the things we're doing on the homestead right now. I recently did an episode where we talked about like everything we've learned this year and our plans going forward. Today's going to be more like, this is what we're doing in the next two weeks uh, some of the plants we're putting in, some of the seed mixes we've come up with, what's going on with the uh, the zone one food forest at this point, getting ready for the workshop, some of the things that are going to go on at the workshop, things like that. And I think everybody will be interested in. Even if you're, of course, you know most of you are not coming to the workshop because there's a whole lot more listeners than we can fit on the property, let alone at one workshop. So, anyway, this should be fun and it should give you a lot of information about different cool plants and seed mixes too. And uh, we'll get to that in just a moment. Before we do, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one today, Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey Guy? You're going to get Berkey Water Filtration Systems. Yep, that's right. That's what the Berkey Guy sells. Berkeys. Amazing. Seriously, don't be the guy that got your, your Berkey from the non-Berkey Guy or your Berkey Filters from the non-Berkey Guy because, well, if you're part of my support, support brigade, he's going to give you a discount, so that's cool. But Jeff is a maniac, maniac at customer service. One of the top dealers for Berkey in the world. That makes him be able to pass on really great pricing to you to go along with that absolutely phenomenal service. He's a good dude all around. He's got other great stuff for your prepping needs. You can find out more at his website, Directive21.com, Directive21.com. Next up today, Fortress Defense Consultants. Remember I talk about the triangle of gun operator efficiency, and there's... Three points of that triangle. That's why it's a triangle. I know Common Core Math tries to make that complicated, but triangle try three, right? So you got the gun. You have to have a gun, or you're not a gun operator. You can move around and go bang bang psh, 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 with your finger. It can get you suspended from school, but it won't make the bad guys fall down and it won't put food on the table. The next thing you need is ammo. You have that gun, you go bang, bang, bang with your mouth, it doesn't shoot. We know we need a gun and ammo. That's self evident. Most people, though, don't realize that training is what is really important. Because we can buy a quality gun, and we can buy quality ammo. We can purchase quality training, but it only works if we make it work. Frank Sharp Jr. and his cadre of instructors at Fortress Defense won't just give you great training. They will train you in a way that you'll be able to come home and train yourself and continue to improve your skills. Check them out today at FortressDefense.com. All right, next up, let us talk about the year that was the episode. The year is 1456. We have Halley's Comet, Age of Discovery and Exile, the Cape Verde Islands. I will leave Age of Discovery and Exile for you to read if you choose to and tell you about Halley's Comet. Edmund Halley has not been born yet, but the comet that will one day bear his name shows up this year anyway. This is the first of four sightings that Halley will use to prove in 1705 that these are all the same comet looping around every 75 to 76 years. There is a rumor that Pope, Cal- Pope C. Uh, the third, has issued a bull regarding the comet, calling for extra prayers, but there's no supporting evidence that he did any such thing. My take by Alex Shrug Comets are seen by some people as a sign of something terrible to come. Here in Texas, Pastor John Hagee has written a book titled Four Blood Moons, which I read... Uh, which I read, he it attempts to prove that the appearance of the four lunar eclipses are a sign of major change, the end times. The pastor seems like a nice guy, really, but I read the supporting text. I'm not buying his logic. He makes the point that he's not trying to convince people like me. Fair enough, respectfully, I'm not convinced. Uh, Alex's opinion of Pastor John Hagee is a little bit better than mine. Pastor John Hagee is the type of guy that makes me think about all of the Christians that say, where are all the good Muslims when it comes to pointing out the actions of bad Muslims? Um, I'm saying nothing negative about Christianity here or your faith if you're a Christian. I am saying Pastor John Hagee is a flim-flam man and a sleazeball selling people bullshit. And I think most people of faith know that. And I think it's detestable when somebody uses the faith of another person to sell them bullshit. I think the guy is a scam artist, and I think that he's the kind of scam artist that Christians shouldn't be afraid to point to and say, yeah, not us. I'm not saying none of you do, I'm just saying it's the kind of thing that needs to be pointed out. There is a belief that none of us should say anything bad about anybody that's on our same team, so to speak. It's how we've gotten into so many problems in this country, you know, it's how we've 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 festered into a dichotomy where no matter how bad the Republican is or the Democrat is, I'm going to vote for him anyway, it's the same crap. It really is the same crap. This guy is like every other guy that's predicted the end times, pulling shit out of his ass and using it to sell something to people that believe in something that lends what he's doing some level of credibility. If you read your own book, guys, you'll find out that You're not going to have somebody tell you when the end times are here, according to your own book. And while we prepare for disasters, let us not be susceptible to those who harbor doomsday, whether they're trying to sell us a book, they're selling us on donating to them, or they're selling us a pallet of MREs. There are sensible ways to prepare for disasters. If the world ends, don't worry about it. It'll be over and if I thought the world was about to end, the last thing I'd be doing is trying to sell books to people for $30 a copy because they have a shiny jacket. That's my take by Jack Spierko on Pastor John Hagee. Who gave this guy his title of pastor? Who ordained this dude? I'd like to know. Anyway, with that, let us get into the main topic of today's show. And uh let us uh talk of better things. So... This week, I am really trying to get my Zone 1 uh, food forest kind of up to snuff. Uh, this is designed to be our showcase, and it's had some real success this year and some real failures, and it's been beat up a little bit by uh, ducks and chickens. So what I did yesterday, I went and got two yards of a good soil mix. It's called Premium Soil Mix. It's a mix of cushion sand and compost. And uh, I've begun to, to dress all the, the three swales in it, so they're going to have about an inch to an inch and a half, maybe two inches in some spots, uh, a, a coating added to them of this soil mix. There's some places where the chickens that get over the fence have dug some holes, so those holes are being filled in, and then a seed mix is going to go over top of them, uh, over top of that dirt, and then a very thin layer of dirt used to harrow over the seed. To harrow means to cover. Uh, and then we'll water them and get them established. And let's talk a little bit about the cover crop seed mix that's going there. There's four grains. There's rye, there's wheat, there's oat, oh, and there's triticale. These are all cereal grains that will handle straight through uh, Texas winter. They will not winter kill. There's about five different clovers, Dutch white, New Zealand white, sweet yellow, crimson red, Dixie reseeding and did I say crimson? Anyway, that's there too, uh, along with uh, a broadleaf clover, arrowleaf clover. That's all part of that seed mix. There's also chicory. There's alfalfa. Oh dear, what else is in that? Uh, daikon, lots of daikon. Um, mustard, and I'm talking more of a tall variety of mustard. There's what's called a hunter forge brassia in there. A little bit of that. Uh, so that's the main cover crop. This is also going to be heavily taken to vegetables as well. So it's going to be a very light seeding of the cover crop, interseed, interseeded with a new vegetable mix that I've come up for sowing in fall and spring. I'll give you all the stuff that's in that mix because I actually have it listed out in a little bit. So, But that seed mix is going down, and then the vegetable seed mix is going on top, and then we're going to go ahead and put that light layer of dirt on it, and uh, we may or may not lightly mulch it them with straw. We'll probably do that. The problem is keeping the chickens away. Um, the straw actually, even even though the, the bare dirt attracts them, the straw really it's like, oh my God, I have to go there. So we have a few birds that get out, especially later in the day that we want to keep off of there at least till it starts to you know the roots are down and it starts to come up. and then they're more likely to browse it than to scratch it. Um eventually I'm probably going to have to put electro wire around my one acre western pasture to keep the damn things in because they just get out uh, my red pharaohs ironically they get out whenever they want to my little red pharaoh chickens and they don't really cause any trouble they're so busy running around hunting they don't do a lot of scratching kind of digging that behavior in them and I'm wondering if that behavior will stick as I continue to breed out that line of the red pharaoh chicken um, it would be interesting to have a chicken. It doesn't, I'm not saying they don't scratch. I'm saying they don't scratch like the leghorns, and they don't scratch like uh, the Sex Links and the Rhode Island Reds that are just constantly scratching. Uh, they seem to be far more of uh, interested in being predatory than scavenging. Anyway, so just thought you'd like to know about that. So I felt really good yesterday. I got two of the berms covered. Uh, I finally got out of the office about 4 o'clock, ran down, picked up a load of dirt, and uh, backed it around the back of the pasture, got it going, And I haven't been able to get out and physically work for a few weeks because I've been so bogged down with everything else that I'm doing. And uh, I gotta tell you, physical work is the greatest thing you could have to improve mood, to counteract depression, especially work that involves dirt. I think that, you know, every time I feel a little bit kind of like, oh, I'm tired, I'm just, that work actually makes you have energy. Uh, Work makes you feel better. I hate spending weeks without not just not getting outside, but not getting outside and physically putting, you know, a burden on your body. Uh, I fill up uh, the, the, we have this huge two wheeled wheelbarrow, and that thing, when you got it full of dirt, it's got to be. 400, 600 pounds, somewhere in between there, depending on how full you get it. Then you've got the mechanical advantage of the wheelbarrow because you can never lift that much weight on your own. But when you lift that, you push it you know, 15, 20 yards, and then you move it as you shovel. It puts that burden on the body, man, and you feel better. And when you're smelling dirt and you're seeing things that you've worked on that kind of like they did their thing and they started to kind of come away from what you're imagining, start to move back and you're creating and sculpting the land by hand, you really feel good. So I'm going to tell you guys that are like, I don't know about all this permaculture stuff, and I don't know if I really want to do that. If for no other reason, do it for your mental state. And then food's a byproduct. Because there is nothing, to me anyway, that makes me feel as good as having a shovel in my hand by choice rather than by necessity. So when I was younger, when I first started in in the world of you know telecommunications which is where I came up through in business i didn't start out selling i didn't start out installing i started out with a shovel you know and i and my come from a coal mining family so i'm very familiar with shovels and when i had to put gardens in for my grandfather as a kid it was a chore it was do this and then you can go play right and now to pick that shovel up by choice is really a gift it's really a gift so i'm just encouraging you to think about that We have a lot of plants on deck that the students will be given a list of. And I'm actually, if you're coming to the workshop, um, by the end of this week, on the Yahoo email list that you're supposed to join that's in your packet of paperwork, I'm going to send a list of all the plants that we have here, or will be here by the time you get here, that we'll be working with, so you can learn a little about them if you want to. I'm giving you some of the cooler stuff. Most of this stuff just arrived. That we're going to be working with. I'm not, and one thing to prep the guys coming to the workshop, we may not plant everything that's here. We'll plant it, but certain things are going to be implemented over the winter with irrigation. We'll do some of that while you're here, but planting something that's going to get in the way of the installation of irrigation. We'll just design it, plan for it to go there, and we'll maintain those plants until such time that it makes sense to put them in the ground. But I bet you we'll put a good 50 to 100 plants in the ground easy. So there'll be plenty of things actually getting installed while we're here. But one of the the, the things I have are Nero and Viking Aronia, and Aronia is a plant that kind of gets a wrap as being like you know choke cherry or something like that. Uh, now in, it is a common name, choke cherry, choke berry for Aronia, but an Aronia is not a choke cherry. A choke cherry is a type of tree. Aronia is a small bush, and it is it has amazing cancer fighting properties to it. Incredible load of antioxidants. Makes a good juice, it's kind of, sort of, in a way, like cranberry juice, but like almost like a blueberry cranberry juice. If you eat wild aronia that hasn't gone through any type of breeding program to be improved, it's pretty tart, it's pretty astringent, especially if you eat it before it's fully ripe and allowed to blet a little bit. Um, but there are improved varieties like Nero and Viking Uh, that are much better for eating out of hand, They and they are a great thing to make meads with, and they are a really high-quality nutraceutical. If you go down to anything from your high-end health food store to Walmart, you'll find Aronia extract product on the shelf, either in tablet or capsule form, because it is so sought out now for its potential as a nutraceutical. So it's really something that we can grow on our own property that is a form of natural medicine. And it is extremely, extremely adaptable to different soil types, different climate types, and things like that. I put in a couple uh, wild ones and some improved varieties in the spring. They've done well. One is just blowing up for me. So I'm going to be putting in some more of those. And those seem like something that are really a great idea to propagate. So we'll be propagating the hell out of those. The next one is Amber Autumn Olive. And uh and amber is actually a trademarked name. It is just a variety of wild autumn olive from Japan. Uh but it is reportedly, I've never actually had the opportunity to taste it yet, but from my research it is considered to be a much better tasting autumn olive than your standard garden variety, you know, reddish black colored autumn olives. But it's still a nitrogen fixer. So we've got a plant that fixes nitrogen plus produces an edible. And it's supposed to be really beautiful when in bloom. White blossoms, yellow berries later on. And uh, so we've got that going in and that was that's getting easier to find, but it's 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 not a real simple plant to find. One Green World has them, Burnt Ridge Nursery has them. They're the only two places I've actually found them uh so far. So I think that is a plant with a lot of potential for development as a landscaping plant. And uh, I think that it's something that if you are a nurse, you know, a person that's thinking about building your own little nursery, it would be a really good plant to add for, for multiple purposes. Uh, we also have pineapple guava. I have, uh, I think, three or four of those here. I am probably going to not put those in until late spring. We had a couple sort of kind of make it. Uh, we'll see how it goes going forward with these new ones, but they're probably going to be loved on as houseplants. But pineapple guava is a, a really interesting plant, also called Fijoa. Uh Pineapple guava is something that if you're zone 7 or higher, you probably can get to work outside for you. Um, we put in several uh, this spring when there was not supposed to be any more frost. We had a forecast saying there would be no more frost. We were past our last frost date. Everything was wonderful, and then it went down to 14 degrees. In that frost, we lost some trees that would no doubt have uh, survived a, a, a freeze like that had they been established. I'm talking about some mulberries and uh, some other things that would just, uh, some small pawpaw seedlings, some some plants that if they had had a, you know, a full season to establish, they would have, like, not cared. They would have probably just been coming out of dormancy. Maybe it would have knocked some buds off them, but they wouldn't have died. And those plants died. So that gives you an idea of how harsh that freeze that came in and hit us was. Uh, it nuked anything that was frost-sensitive. Just abs- like looked like a microwave hit it. And uh, these little plants, like, the leaves look like they burned off of them. And right now, of the three, two still have little tiny bits of green leaves coming back on them. I don't know if they'll recover, but my belief is if we put them in at the right time of the year, love on them a little bit, and take care of them, establish a really deep root system, give them a good heavy mulching going into the next winter, uh, they should be able to make it here because we are zone eight seven eight seven depends on what day they're drawing the map up, so um, we should be able to do it even if we're in seven because they should be hardy to seven in the right situation. I've also got some new. Uh, pomegranates uh, that we're putting in this year. Uh, a couple that I've actually just recently heard about uh, that I'm I'm actually kind of excited about. One of them. Uh, one is called Haku Haku Batan. It is a Japanese uh, pomegranate. Um, actually, uh, actually um, a somewhat dwarf pomegranate. only gets to five to six feet tall uh, at maturity. Uh, It'll start bearing in one to two years, so it's pretty quick to bear. And it is a self-fertile pomegranate, all pomegranates are, and it's hardy to at least 12 degrees. So that means we should be just fine with it here, maybe a little bit of mulch on it in in some areas where it might get uh, in a little bit of a frost pocket. Uh, But it has a white fruit. So this is a white-fruited pomegranate, and most pomegranates have red or pink flowers. This is a white flower, and the flower looks almost like a rose, so it 's almost like having a rose bush that grows pomegranates without thorns is is kind of a way to think about it. Um, it is really really an awesome and unique plant, and uh, i 'm kind of excited to uh, to have the opportunity to grow it and then i 've got another pomegranate this does have red flowers like your typical pomegranate, another one that that only grows five to six feet tall. Uh, but this is trademark named favorite, which means it's just a variety of pomegranate that one green world or somebody has decided to mark it under a name and TM it. So, um, but it is originally from southern Russia. It was brought into our country, according to the research I have, in 1991, and uh, should be able to have uh, survive temperatures below 10 degrees. So that's pretty hardy for a pomegranate. And uh, we think it should do really well here. And having those two unique, a Russian and Japanese pomegranate, uh, I, I think will add a lot of diversity to what we're trying to accomplish here. I'm also adding Korean bush cherry, uh, which I am struggling with. How is this plant really different from Nanking cherry? Uh, Nanking cherry's scientific name is Prunus thomastosia. Tomostos, and Korean bush cherry uh, is actually from Japan, Believe it or not, it's just Korean is one of the common names for it, and it's Prunus japonica. So I think these are very similar shrubs. The leaves on them look almost identical. The, the bark on the plants that I have looks very, very similar. But the Nanking did good here, so it's likely the Korean would. And we, if we have both, even if they're almost, for you know all shits and giggles, identical types of plants, they have a different genetic makeup. And one may do better than the other, and they're both e- they 're both inexpensive to buy as seedlings and they 're both supposedly easy to propagate from seed though the seed I purchased for nanking cherry, I could not get to germinate, but I may have done something wrong so 're writing Korean bush cherry, which is a small um, a small bush form. And they're cherries, but they're small for a cherry. They wouldn't be like your, your typical cherry you'd make pie or eat out of hand. Uh, though that's what you do with them. You eat them out of hand and make pies and meads and wines and all kinds of other great stuff. I'm also, uh, expanding my cherries. I have Royal Lee and Mini Royal, which are two very low chill variety cherries. And I have a Brooks cherry that seems to be recovering after being beat up by the Texas Sun. And I've learned now about a cherry called Lapins. Lapins is a self-fertile cherry that uh, is also a low-chill requirement that will work in the South. I learned about that from uh, Bob Wells. And then this morning, I was doing some of my morning reading uh, of a catalog, and I was looking at the chill requirements of cherries, and I found a cherry variety I'm not familiar with called Stella, uh, which only requires 400 chill hours. So I don't know if Bob Wells carries those, uh, when I go out to get my plants from him, we'll add that to my order if, uh, if he carries Stella. If not, I'll order some, get them here in December and they'll go in. I, I think that growing cherries in Texas just sounds cool. Uh, it hasn't been easy so far, but nothing ever worth doing is easy. So I have these mainstay plants. You know, my, my plums, my peaches, my apples, my pears have all just done fairly well. The jujubes have done well. Um the dogwoods have really taken a beating but I think they're going to turn around but I still want to keep pushing some edgy things. Now, I also mentioned in a show earlier uh you know last last week that I'm moving more toward with the vegetables a snap Holzer style, mix it all together, spread it all out, thin it and let what grows grow wherever it grows. And I've come up with I think which is a pretty good mix. For winter and spring gardens and fall gardens. And I might have actually left something out of this list. And, and, and eventually I'm going to put uh, online, on a, like a small article basically, the portions of all of these uh, as I'm refining what I'm actually doing with this mix and the actual varieties. Uh, of what I'm, I'm putting in my mix. So I don't think the varieties are that important. They're the varieties that I chose because I could buy them in bulk, get them now, uh, and I wanted them to be, as many as possible, be heirloom open po- pollinated varieties to allow a lot of this stuff maybe to naturalize and outcross. But here's what I've got in my mix. I've got turnips. Those are purple top. Parsnips. Parsnips, for people not familiar with them, if you go to the store, you're looking at carrots, and all of a sudden you're seeing white carrots. They're probably not white carrots, though they do exist. They're probably parsnips. This is a plant that grows a lot like a carrot, a white root, kind of, sort of tastes like a carrot, but not really. Uh, They're they're just, I love them in stews. Since I don't do a lot of potatoes, when I do a stew, I usually will take like two small potatoes and cut them into cubes and include that in my stew, which makes it not paleo anymore, but two potatoes in a pot of stew that's going to make 20 bowls is just not that much potato, and that gives Dorothy a few potatoes because she likes real potatoes. But I put parsnips, turnips, rutabaga, uh, you name it, I put it in my stews, root different root vegetables. So parsnips. Um, carrots. I think Scarlet Nantes is what I went with, but just a good garden variety carrot. Uh, lettuce. Blackseed at Simpson is what I'm going with because I've had the best success with it here as I've grown individual plants. Beets. Um, I think beets are just a great root vegetable. If you've never had a roasted beet, try roasted beets. Braised beets, just awesome. I mean, there's more things you can do with a beet than pickle it or put it in a can. Uh, and a roasted beet, you just cut the tops off of it. Uh, you make sure it's washed well. Rub it with olive oil. Sprinkle it with garlic, rosemary, and, and, and thyme. And roast it like a potato in the oven. They they come out amazing. Cut them in half long ways, not horizontal, uh, and do that and put them down. And you could even maybe put down like a, a bed of their greens, which are going to be way overcooked at that point, but set them on their greens and it'll hold the juice. Add a little bit of white wine to that at the end as you deglaze your pan and make a sauce pour back over your beets. Take some of the other greens, braise those in a pan, serve the two together. Pretty awesome what you can do with a beet. Uh, a, a vegetable that we have lost respect for in the United States, I think because it's like well that's what poor people eat beets right or that's that's what we can, and we you know we we put eggs in the juice uh no beets are very versatile, and i'm starting to see a lot of high end restaurants do things with roasted and braised beets there's a place I love if you ever get a chance. By the way, the guy that runs it's named Love, Tim Love. Um, but it's called Lonesome Dove, and it's in downtown Fort Worth down at the stockyards. And he has a huge ranch of about 20,000 acres west of here, and a lot of the stuff on the menu comes off his ranch. And it's both... Ranched stuff and hunted stuff, because there's elk, for instance, on the menu. Uh, rabbit and rattlesnake sausage to give you a feel for this place. Um, it's expensive, but it's a major dining experience. And it kind of tells you, okay, so this is a high-end restaurant. This is a place where, where servers and tips are probably knocking down three to five hundred dollars a night on a good night. And they're serving braised beets. Braised Swiss chard. Okay along with these other high-end meals. And it is phenomenal what these chefs at this place do with a beet or Swiss chard or other things like that. So just start to think, like, if you start growing all this stuff, if you get a little bit creative, you can have the same type of meal that people are out paying you know $100 a plate for, honest to God, Uh, by the time it's all over with with drinks and desserts and appetizers and everything. Um, Next up, radishes. I'm not a big fan of radish, but I like having them there, and uh, so I think I want a French breakfast, either that or, um, it's, it's kind of a longer radish, so uh, I don't remember exactly the variety, but something that would be about the size and shape of your thumb, uh, red and white, and uh, I, think it's, I think it's French breakfast. Also, daikon radishes I have in my mix. Daikon, I actually like pickled. I I don't know why I don't really care for normal radishes, but... You know, daikon done with a fermentation pickling, you know, uh, style. Uh, I really think they're awesome with other things like carrots and other vegetable medleys built in with them. I've also added some sorrel. Uh, that's actually a perennial, and it will hopefully come back over and over again. And it's one of your earliest things you can pick in spring that will come up on its own. Um, I am including clover right in my vegetable mixes now, just Dutch white clover. Um I, I pretty much want clover to grow wherever it can survive on my property. And uh, wherever it can survive, I'm happy to have it there. Chard, I think I've already mentioned with you know the bracing of chard, but Swiss chard is also in this mix. A cutting celery. So uh most people think of celery, they think of like you know, Utah, tall Utah or something like that. The celery you buy in stores, but there's actually cutting celeries. And climate seven and above, often your cutting celeries become perennial. And you don't really have like that crunchy celery stick um, that you can put peanut butter on or whatever. But you do end up with a very good, high-quality flavor celery that g- chopped in soups and stews and even little bits of it into salads and things like that uh, for making uh, mirepoix, which is we take onions, uh, carrots, and celery in equal parts, and we sauté those as a base for our cooking. So having a perennial celery, because celery is just a pain in the ass, honestly, If you've ever tried to start celery seed, I have had more grief trying to start celery seed uh, than anything else I've ever grown. And my solution is to get a pound of cutting celery seed, mix it into my vegetable mix, and every time I use a vegetable mix somewhere, some of it's going there. And sooner or later, some of it will land in a place where it's happy and it'll grow, and uh, we'll just keep it going. I'm also doing parsley and herb into this mix, and I think parsley is one of the greatest uh, garden herbs that you can have grown on your property, but I'm doing a rooting parsley, a parsley that is not only good for cutting the tops, but in the second year when it goes to the seed and you yank it up, you can use the parsley root. I'm doing both pak choy and bok choy, which are two different types of uh, of cabbage of uh, Chinese cabbages uh, for mixing the stir fries and things. Mustard Now I have like cover crop mustard in the mix. From the cover crop standpoint of just like a tall Brassia mustard, but I'm thinking of like a red mustard, like a mustard green that you would eat and use, and arugula. So if you think about that now, I'll just run through it fast. Turnip, parsnip, carrot, lettuce, beets, radish, daikon, soil, clover, chard, cutting celery, rooting parsley, bok choy, bok choy, mustard, arugula. And that's all in one mix. And we are br- everywhere we do work where we're disturbing the soil or adding st- soil, topsoil, and mulching, that's going down. In the food forest, in the Zone 2 orchard, in the Zone 1, it's going into my gardens. It's going everywhere. If there's exposed dirt that can be irrigated or kept moist and mulched, it's going on it. And wherever it comes up, so be it. And I think that that is actually going to add a lot of productivity, diversity, and will over time be able to develop a lot of land races. There's not a lot of stuff there that will cross-pollinate into any kind of uh, negative. Technically, beets and chard can cross-pollinate. I'm not too worried about it. Um, your, your, your radishes can cross-pollinate, but hey, I'm not exactly living on radishes anyway. Um, your cabbages can, sort of, but there's only two. Uh, mustard, you could outcross with the, uh, the cover crop variety, but... The reality of that is is they have different times that they actually go into their pollination cycles. And our tall mustards uh, that will grow, you know, uh, your, these, these cover crop mustards that I grow, they grow, if you looked at some of the old videos of my place in Arkansas where I'm standing up to my neck and I'm surrounded by these these tall white and yellow flowers, that's an oilseed daikon and the mustard type that I'm talking about. So as they get up like that, we can just whack them down and chop and drop them anyway. Uh, and let our, our red, our red mustard, which is what we're growing, go to seed. Arugula becomes perennial reseeding, basically, uh, if you grow enough of it long enough. So, um, the sorrel should be perennial in of itself. The clover doesn't hurt anything, it helps everything. I guess your turnip, uh, could cross with any other brassia. And I don't think I have any other brassias on the list there, but, I, well, you cabbages. Um, but again, you're talking about different cycles. And I also think of this when I think of getting too worried about cross-pollination. When I met Sepp Holzer in Montana, he wasn't quite as amazing as I thought he would be as far as being a great teacher. Uh, he wasn't really interested in answering questions, and I think he took a lot of questions the wrong way. Um, Like as though people were questioning whether he was right or not. I think he has a little bit of that complex going on. But there were times he would settle in and start really giving you the information you were there for, and it was awesome. And somebody asked him when he was talking about all these different polycultures about cross-pollination, and it was one of the times where he kind of waved somebody away, but it was done for theatrics, and it was funny instead of really off-putting. And he just went (laughs) like that, and he just waves his hand back and forth like (laughs) And it was basically, I don't give a shit. I keep planning stuff, and whatever I like, I keep, and I pl- I pick, and I grow, and I get more of it. And I, I, we're moving way to that side of things. And if you think, this sounds like a crazy mix, well, wait till you hear what I've got planned for a summer mix. It's going to be awesome and uh, we're going to be doing a lot of work like this also at PermiEthos. I've been doing a lot of this research for them as well uh, so that we can get a lot of this land race development going up there, where we obviously have a lot more potential with it long-term, and uh, we'll probably be making some of our own mixes and seed varieties available to you guys by the end of next year. Um, I may have some of this available for you guys coming to the event. I won't be able to give everybody some of it. I may give everybody some cover crop, but the vegetable mix, it's – it's expensive to make, it really is, so we're talking maybe a few packets available that I'll give away as a door prize and maybe a couple that we'll barter or sell or something like that. Um, let's talk about the event a little bit. So one of the things, like, so this weekend, one of the things Darth had to do was go in the garage and clean everything up, uh, had some, some junk in the way and stuff like that, set up all the tables. Uh, I got a bunch of power strips and short extension cords in, so I'm going to this time wire up the whole serving line of tables so there's always outlets for the workers so they can plug you know, crock pots microwaves whatever in uh, all the way down the line without having to you know grab electric cords and run them different ways and things like that uh, we got two lines of tables set up, we've got all the chairs ready to go, got the couch cleaned up, I basically beat the hell out of the couch with the broom because the dog's been sleeping on it like it's his own couch and uh, we've got everything ready to go garage looking good we've been cooking our asses off Uh, I've done up, I think, 12 pounds at least of breakfast sausage for two days, so six pounds a day. Maybe it's 16 pounds. Anyway, I know based on past experience, there's plenty of sausage. Uh, Bacon, we do pre-cooked bacon just for expediency's sake. We have something like 20 dozen eggs, chicken and duck eggs in the refrigerator and two weeks to go before the event. So I may be selling eggs to you guys coming too if you want to, like cheap. Um, take home some fresh Spirico eggs. If there's somebody coming to the event that would like me to start maybe Monday of the week, because 10 days is your time limit to get eggs into an incubator, and put aside some eggs for you to incubate from our ducks, I can probably collect between one to two dozen eggs if they keep laying. I mean, we are going into shorter days, uh, and they laid less today, but I could probably collect for you and set aside a dozen to a dozen and a half duck eggs. So if anybody coming would want some of my mixed flock duck eggs for incubation purposes, let me know, because then they need to not go in the refrigerator. Do you want some chicken eggs for that? I can do that too, but I don't know what you're going to get. I don't know what you're going to get with the ducks either, but I know you're going to get ducks. The chickens right now, i got so much mixed variety over there. Uh, you're not going to get any, well, you might. You get a little white egg, it might be a red farrow egg, but uh, I'm going to have those available next year. Anyway, so that's just a, an aside there. Uh, so we've been cooking, again, we, we made, I made the handmade breakfast sausage. It's already sautéed, it's put away. Uh, we made up like... Oh, I don't know, 3 gallons or more of the uh, uh the famous Sandy Beaten uh apple and squash soup. It's it's phenomenal. Uh that's already made frozen, so all we have to do is take it out, and heat it up for you guys. We did up uh, uh two huge crock pots full of Dorothy's Tex Mex chicken, which is just easy as hell. Uh you take for a big batch, you do two jars. Two jars of salsa, dump it into your uh your crock pot, turn it on high. Uh, put the lid on it, wait about 10 minutes. Crock pots take a long time to heat up, but with only a couple things of salsa in there, heats up pretty quick. Don't put your salsa in the refrigerator. Okay? Because you don't have to until you open it, you're gonna have a whole jar in. So, use off-the-shelf salsa, it'll heat up faster. Salsa of your choice. Then I know this is a little not natural or whatever, but it just tastes good, and it's not that big a deal. Uh, open up one packet of your taco seasoning of choice, little envelope. And dump it in there. So one jar and one packet for three pounds of chicken. If you're going to fill the crock pot up like we do we'll make for a lot of people, two and two. Dump the taco season in there and stir it up. So the only thing you've done is you've heated up the salsa enough so that the taco seasoning will mix well. Get a ladle and take like three quarters of it out and put it in a bowl to the side. And then put your chicken in bone on, bone off, doesn't matter really, and then put your, your salsa taco seasoning back over the top of it because if you're doing a lot of chicken, it's hard to mix and if it's all on the bottom, and you can't really just dump it on the top because it needs to be blended together. So that just makes it easy. Reserve it in a bowl, put the chicken and dump it on top, then you can mix it around a little bit. Set it on, on uh, slow cook, uh, your lower temperature, put a lid on it, keep an eye on it, uh, sometimes you got a lot of it kind of sticking up above the juice. So kind of rotate it and push it down a little here and there as you're cooking it. But pretty much let it slow cook till about four hours till it's fall apart. Uh, if it's on the bone, take it all out. Uh, let it cool a little bit. Take it off the bone with your hands. Uh, separate any uh, cartilage and skin and whatever and put that aside for the puppies. Get, get rid of, you know, compost the bones. Um, and then put the chicken back in and you kind of shred the chicken, so like for enchiladas, tacos, things like that. It is so simple, and it is so awesome. And the stuff we made is all fresh birds that I personally uh butchered here on on the TSP Ranch. So that's waiting for people that come. Uh, we also have come up with a corn and black bean Mexican chicken soup that I came up with and tested, and it works really, really good. So you do everything I just said. And you end up with like a really big amount of juice from all that chicken fat, all the, the, the water that cooks out of the chicken incorporated with all of the salsa, the tomatoes and the peppers and the salsa all cooked down. And you end up with like really juicy, soupy chicken way more than you'd want. So you reserve off that taco seasoned chicken yumminess juice. And then you take a cro- a stock pot. And you pitch like chicken backs and necks and wings and 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 leftover parts from ch- roasted chicken in there. Make up a big old pot of chicken stock. You take all your bones and stuff out. You separate your cartilage and skin and all for the puppies. Compost your bones, and you. I mean, you cook. You can give the dog some of these bones because by the time you're done making stock, I mean you can just take the bone and it doesn't crack. It bends and and crumbles. That's how you cook a, a bone stock with it, right? So then you have all your pieces of chicken that you've pulled off. So you end up with a pretty good amount of chicken. So you have a chicken stock with a lot of chicken meat in it. You take your juice from your Tex-Mex chicken, you put that in the pot, and you bring it up to temperature. Then you dump in a big can of corn and a big can of black beans. And it's freaking awesome. So we're going to make that for you guys while you're here. We just have this chicken stock frozen. We have the reserve juice frozen. So we'll put it in a big stock pot heated it up for you guys one day for lunch. That's going to be awesome. And of course, we're doing brisket. we got to do brisket. I'm going to probably this time, though... The brisket always comes out awesome. It's never as tender as I want it to be for you guys, though. So I'm probably going to smoke the brisket um, this, th- th- this week. And uh, that way, when... We bring it out, we'll just warm it for you and, and tenderize it in the oven that day. It'll it'll probably be a lot more tender than it's been for those of you who've been before because they don't like serving brisket It's not really tender. So I know this stuff, I'm telling you now, isn't that applicable to those of you who aren't coming, but it gives you a feel for what it's going to be like here. And also, I just told you how to make a lot of really good stuff. We're also doing smoked pork shoulder. I always do really... Uh, awesome smork, smoked pork shoulder for you guys. Easiest thing to do with that, coat it with uh, Keith's nose, low and slow barbecue, and smoke it all day long. I mean, that's just, and pork shoulder comes out nice and tender with, you know, six, eight hours of uh, of roasting, smoking, slow cooking on it. You don't have to cook it, you know, overnight like you really have to do to get a brisket really the way that you want it to be. So those are the things that we're doing there. And I wanted to, at the end of today's episode, talk to you guys a little bit about the future of TSP and TSP events. Whenever we do one of these events, we always start off with, you know what, we should do one, but we should keep the attendance down, and we should keep it down to like 20. And we're like, well, 24 is really not that much more. And then as soon as you start talking about it, you get from people that are afraid they're not going to be able to come. And we know we always sell out if we're down in that number. And then we know we always have some cancellations. So then we say, well, we'll sell 28, and then we think, well, let's do 30. And then somehow, a couple people managed to get in that weren't supposed to somehow or another. Then a couple people show up that um, won a free attendance or something like that in the past. And then you know you get people who you think, I'd make a great instructor to bring in as an adjunctive instructor. And next thing you know, we're looking at 40 to 50 people here on property, and it always ends up that way. And I don't think we should do that any different. I really don't. I think that... By doing that, we bring you guys so much more peripheral things that you wouldn't expect. So we say, come to a workshop, learn how to do plant propagation and forest design. Come for that. Next thing you know, there's a guy here with a falcon, right, or a hawk. Uh and then there's a guy sharpening Patrick Rohrman ends up here sharpening knives and you know this time we have Gary Collins coming in to do a presentation on 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 health and nutrition and designing your your diet for your lifestyle your way uh and 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 John Pugliano coming in talking about investing with the permaculture philosophy right so you know a a sustainable investment and you, you start to realize like if we try to push back the numbers that's just not going to happen, and that's you know it's just so much more deep. And when you get a big enough group together, what happens is certain people always gel. And you, when you have a group that size, of you you never have somebody that doesn't really find two or three or four other people they really gel with. So you never see anybody kind of alone unless they just need a break. And and I like that, and it lets me then move around through the event and talk to everybody but have these clusters of four, five, six people that I'm talking to so they can give everybody attention. Because the last thing I want you to do is come here and not get my attention. Uh, because it's part of why you're here. So you can tell me about the things you're doing, ask me questions, and I can give you my advice and, and simply listen to you. I mean, I look at these as an amazing opportunity to be a good servant to the community that provides my income. We do make some money on them. There's a couple reasons. One, because it's a shitload of work. You cannot imagine how much work goes into the planning, the preparation, the execution, and then the need to restore everything back to normal after everybody leaves. That's why we started out on Sundays. You can leave at at 1230, and then it became 12 o'clock, and now it's like 11 a.m. Get off the property. I need a nap. And then we have to clean all this crap up. Everybody does a great job of kind of picking up after themselves. With that many people, you just end up with everything in disarray. So part of it is we just, to justify the work, we have to make a profit. And then my wife, to justify all this craziness in her house, if we make some money, she feels better about it. So I'm not saying we do these as a non-profit, because we don't. But we spend a lot of money on them. And we spend a lot of money on them doing all the extra stuff. People are leaving with... Free. I take... The last time, last two times, I took a can of seed, $500 can of seed from one of the seed banks, but it's good seed, right? And opened it up and set it on the table when everybody's doing a seed exchange and says, anybody take anything you want from that can, right? Just take it. Don't clean out one variety so that everybody can get a little bit, but anything you want, you can just have it. Um, this time I probably will send everybody home with a you know a, a ziploc bag full of cover crops. We did that at Perma Ethos. Um, I have to look at what we have and how we're going to put that mix together, but I probably will send everybody home with with a bag of, of seed mix. Everybody's getting comfrey. There's a bunch of comfrey that just showed up. It's mostly so I can give it away. We're going to plant probably half of it and give half of it away to you guys. We bring in these extra instructors. We do all of this stuff to try to make them exciting. And to make them fun and to make them experiences. And the only problem is we only have so much mental, physical and time bandwidth available to be able to do so many of them. And that's what we've talked about in the four doing two a year. And I'm beginning to think maybe we can do three. One fall, two spring. Uh, because spring, I just have more time. I don't know what it is about this time of year, but I get compressed. So I want you guys to understand that that's why there's not you know, six of these things a year because I don't think we could deliver the quality of the experience uh, of one of these events if we did too many of them. I, I really don't. But I do want to tell you guys that we'll be looking at coming in the spring, when we do at least one this spring, if you can get to one of these things, get to them. I have been to all types of things. Giant, huge events with two, three hundred people and little intimate training courses with a dozen. I don't know how we've managed to do what we do here, but the experience here is unlike anything else I've ever been to. And I think you have to experience it to understand it and be part of it. And I can tell you a big part of what it is. it's, It's you guys that come here. It's the group that's here, the group dynamic. and the amount of side teaching and side consultation and, and side uh, idea exchange that goes on is, is absolutely phenomenal. And I'd like to say there's, there's been over 200 people now, never at the same time, but the total uh, variety, you know, of everybody you count, every person that's been here, it's almost 200 people. And thank you to every single one of you that's come as a student, as a a helper, as a staff member, as an instructor, uh, as as just a drive-by visitor that had something cool to share with everybody, uh, because you guys are amazing. And thanks to everybody in this community uh, that listens to this show. And I'd like to talk to you guys a little bit about the future of TSP now, too, not just the events, and and where I want to go with this podcast next. And most of it is just keep doing what we're doing. I hate people that say, I want to re- I want to reinvent my company. Is your company successful? Yeah, then don't reinvent it. Keep doing what you've been doing. Now, if your company's failing, maybe you need to reinvent it. But it's always when companies try to go out and change everything that they fall apart. On the other hand, I know I've honked some of you guys off this week, especially Monday on my show about not voting. And again, I at this point, I want to tell you, I am going to bring you more subjects like that that you're absolutely sure of your stance on and I'm going to challenge the core of your beliefs on those subjects I am not going to ask you to change your mind I'm going to ask you to do the self-evaluation of why you believe what you believe and you should never fear that if you fear that, that means your belief is shaky to begin with and you're clinging to something out of fear versus out of true belief. And there's a reason that I need to do that. And you're not going to like what I'm going to say right now. But I've learned that it's true. You live in a nation where the majority of your fellow citizens are statist, big government types. The majority of Americans are not for freedom. They're not for liberty. They're not for independence, they're not for self-determination, they're not for self-preservation, and they're certainly not for self-responsibility. The majority. In the whole discussion about voting, what I knew came further forward for me. So that journey for me also was a journey of discovery into a place I don't want to go. I don't want to say this. I don't want to admit this. But I can tell you how to prove to yourself it's true if you want to do it, go out into a random city or town and randomly start talking to people on the street, get a clipboard so you look official and say, we're doing some polling here. We want to know, would you be for cutting government spending by 20%? And in the right areas, you'll find a shitload of people that say, yeah, absolutely, this government's run amok, it's gone crazy, damn Democrats, yada, yada, whatever, okay, fine, and say, okay, so what departments should we cut? We were thinking that we should cut military spending, since it's the biggest department. So we, we should cut that by something. Oh, you can't do that. we got to support the troops. Oh, okay. Well, the next biggest expense is uh, Social Security. Oh, you can't do that. you got to protect the old people. Okay, well, the Department of Education's huge. And, uh, you know, the, the really, really should be done more by local. Uh, oh, you can't do that. The kids need us. And you'll have to guard your throat. Because everything you want to cut, they'll want to cut your throat over. Who will do that? See, it's fear. It's a fear response. They've been sold on the need for all this stuff. So the whole point that you're not going to get a different result by voting is because most of the people voting around you want big government. That's why you get two big government candidates for President of the United States. Because it's what people want. Voting does, it is real. It's not as fake as the WWF. It's more like boxing. See, boxing, you can control who the next champion is. Or at least you can say, it's going to be one of these ten guys. Because you have rules and you have a sanctioning body and you decide who gets to box. You really don't think the heavyweight champion of the world in boxing, wouldn't weigh 400 pounds if that wasn't controlled and prevented from happening? You really think a guy like, remember in wrestling, Andre the Giant, <laughs> right? A, a guy whose arm has about a seven foot freaking reach that you can pound on all day and he doesn't care? You really think that guy could have gotten a ring and slammed one of these heavyweights in the head and knocked him the hell out? Of course, of course he could have, right? Oh, you're sticking sticky move, Jack. No, no loop doesn't work when a guy's 500 pounds okay and reasonable not great but reasonably athletic it just does not so <laughs> it's like boxing you control the entry and then you know you're gonna get down to this 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 list of candidates, they're gonna go through the primaries, and out of that, you know only one or two of those guys can make it out of the primaries, and then you know your final two, you could go start out today and figure out probably four people that could be those final two in the next presidential election. So that's that's how you control that. But you know what? People do get to vote all along the way, including in the primaries. People do get to look like look at candidates on the Democrats like Dennis Kucinich, which still a statist. But less of one than a lot of other Democrats. Or a a candidate on the right like a Ron Paul, not a Rand Paul. Rand is not his dad. He is not a clone. And the people of this country reject those people. They reject those people. And they're not even really for complete freedom. Ron Paul probably more than anybody else that ever ran for the presidency is for your individual freedom and liberty. And he's rejected by people that claim to be small government, conservative Republicans. Because he doesn't want to blow enough people up, and he doesn't want to spend as much money as everybody else does. So you're surrounded by status. So what that means, because what everybody's saying to me then, Jack, how do we change this if it's not going to be by voting? Well, I'm sorry, I'm not going to lie to you and say it is, when your two choices are people that are traitors to your constitution. You can't restore liberty with a tyrant. Now, again, I'm going to hear from all of you about voting in the local elections and the town council. I said to go vote in those if you have a choice. So don't try to convince me that it's okay because I already said go do it. I'm talking about the people that run your country. And in many of those smaller elections, it's the same shit. But there are places where you can make a legitimate difference with voting. Small differences here and there. Pick and choose your battles and go do it. Or vote in everything. I don't care. But understand that you can't select the lesser of two evils and move your direct your country in the direction of liberty. You can't elect a person who's for increasing spending in every department of government and make government smaller. You can't do it. It's impossible. So stop believing you can. But understand the reason you can't. It's not that the democratic process used in a republic couldn't result in a nation becoming more free and more liberated. It's that under the current situation where all the people voting want more shit and want to blame somebody else for their problems and don't want to take personal responsibility, it ain't going to happen. Your problem is not the people like me that say, I've had enough of this crap, I'm not voting this time because there's nothing for me to vote for. Your problem is all the people that are voting. Saddam Hussein came to power through elections. Adolf Hitler came to power through elections. I mean... I could go on with a list of dictators that were elected. Oh, it's a one-party system. I don't care. They were elected. They were chosen. They were the lesser of two evils. And in many situations, it became a one-party system after that person was elected. When Adolf Hitler was elected, there were choices on the ballot. Now, there's propaganda used to swing the election. How's that different? Voting in of itself does not guarantee liberty and freedom. We put a democratic government in Afghanistan, and the first thing they wanted to do was execute somebody for their religious stance. And they were voted into office. Voting is a reflection of the people, and if the voting is giving you tyrants, the people are the problem. Therefore, we must change the people, and we will not change the people by giving them something else to vote for. I discovered this years ago when I heard about the magical world of libertarianism. When I heard libertarian, I thought liberal. I'm a Republican. I voted for Bush, and I'm proud of it. And then they said, no, it's not liberal. It's libertarian. Liberty. Wow. Okay, I'll look, but I'm skeptical. And, and then I learned, okay, well, it's like it's socially liberal and fiscally conservative. Leave people alone to do what they want. Stop prosecuting victimless crimes and spend a lot less money and let people step up and solve their own problems. And it was like a symphony. It was like beautiful music. I was like, oh, my God, how does not everybody know about this? Is this new? No, it's not new. It's officially been around since the 70s, but it's a very ancient philosophy, and it it, it stems from anarcho-capitalism, and it's with a minarchist system, and oh my God, holy shit, if you just tell people about this, I was like the people that, like Jeff Lawton when he learned about permaculture in 1983, he thought, well, by 86, the whole world's going to do this, this is great. That's how I, and that's how most libertarians are. You get something called messiah complex. I will save the world with libertarianism, and you start telling people about it. And like one in twenty think it's a good idea, and you convince yourself for a while that those other nineteen, I just must not be explaining this right. They must not understand what they're saying no to, or they must not just yet comprehend how it could work. It's like they, but no, what it actually is. As you're talking to people who have been taught this from birth. You need the government to step in and make injustices right. Individuals can't do it. You need the government to step in and educate children. Individuals can't do it without government guidance. You need the government to be involved in every single aspect of your lives. And if the government shrinks in any way, it's bad for you. Except it should shrink over here because these people are bad. But you're good. The same message is given to both sides of that dichotomy. And those people fear liberty. Those people fear self-determination. Those people fear individual responsibility. They talk about those words, but Nick Ferguson has a habit of saying of certain people, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And in many instances, people use words like self-determination and self-defense. They don't know what it means. They use words like individual responsibility and they don't know what it means. The word doesn't mean what they think it means. Because we've been so programmed to believe that which our masters wish us to believe. That we need them. So I will continue to do shows that challenge the beliefs that you are sure, sure are true. Like the men who died in World War One died for you. I put out a song by the Dropkick Murphys yesterday on Facebook called The Greenfields of France. I heard from a lot of people said, oh, this is dishonoring to their memory. It's not dishonoring to their memory, it's actually honoring to their memory. They were lied to, they were tricked, they were told it was the war to end all wars, and then it happened again and again and again and again. And World War I was the most avoidable war in the history of modern man. There's never been a war. There's never been bloodshed that could have been more easily avoided than World War I. And World War I set the stage for the most horrific atrocities and the rise of the greatest dictators of all time in World War II. And the blood that was spilled in World War I was spilled for nothing. It was a mistake. It was a screw-up. And it led to worse things. And they sort of kind of teach around that in school. Remembering our fallen only matters if we are honest about why they fell. What they believed, the honor that they held in their hearts and their souls, is honorable, and it's worthy of respect. But if you truly respect Someone's willingness to die, you should respect them enough to examine if they were misled and lied to by criminals who sent them off to war, knowing that that person who did the sending would never have to shed a drop of blood, but might profit from it. If we don't examine the control mechanisms used on society, if we don't challenge our preconceived beliefs, and even if we come out at the end of that challenge and say, these beliefs are valid, At least then we know thereby why we believe what we believe. And then those beliefs actually have meaning and become actionable. Because the truth is your masters allow you to vote because in most instances it creates true apathy. Because the person says, well, you know, I at least get to vote every two years on who my leaders are. I have a say. And that absolves them of the responsibility to do things that actually matter. I'll tell you a truth about people in power. An honest to God truth. And it will ring true for you when I tell you right now. But then you'll have to think about what it means in so many other walks of life. People in power never get upset when the people they control take actions that do not threaten their power. Does that make sense? You can do whatever you want. As long as I'm still in control, that's fine. Okay? Got that. Okay, number one. Number two, people in power never encourage activities by the people they control that would be a threat to their power. Okay? You got that? I'm in power. I want to remain in power. I'm not going to encourage you to do something that's a threat to my control. Okay? The people in power have set up a system that programs the mind of the individual in America today from the time they're 8 years old and participate in their first mock election and student body elections, that sends to you the message that voting is a duty because it was given to you by your, the people that came before you and died for your right to vote, so that you will vote. If voting was a threat to the powers that be, they would not encourage the behavior. Does that mean voting can't be a threat to them? No. It means that they are so aware of how well they control society through marketing that they don't fear it any longer. So they might as well encourage it because it entrances you and it vests you in the outcome and therefore it villainizes the guy that didn't vote or it villainizes the guy that voted for the other guy. And therefore you are easier to control after you tick your box. Does that mean you shouldn't tick your box? No, but it means you should know that when you do so that it can no longer control you. If you want to enter a room, You turn the light on first. And that way you don't get hurt or worse. You don't enter a dark room without turning on a light. Don't take an action without shining a light on it. Understand it. And therefore, you can make a fully informed decision about what you're doing. You can vote your conscience, whatever that is. You can even vote for someone I would call a traitor, because he's a lesser of two evils, if that's what you want to be, and I will honor your choice. But don't deceive yourself into what you're actually doing. Because if you do, you get bogged down in the minute bullshit, and then you blame me for Barack Obama because I didn't vote in the last election. I'm not responsible for Barack Obama, and neither is anybody that didn't vote. The people that are responsible for Barack Obama are the people that did vote. We must challenge our beliefs, and I'm going to keep doing it. We're going to leave voting go for a while, though I do think I have an interesting idea for a show in the next week or two. I could use your help. You can email me with alternative, just alternative in the subject line. And I'd like to hear from you guys all the actions that individuals can and have taken that have a greater influence on the future direction of their country than voting or running for office. One, I will give you as an idea to to start the thinking process. I believe that if every day of your life or every week of your life, for the rest of your life, you told one new person what jury nullification was, that's five hundred and or that's 52 people a year, that's 520 people over 10 years. Using a little bit of uh projection forward with you tell two people, they two tell two people, etc. Uh, this is the kind of thing that people would talk to others about. It's quite reasonable that after 10 years, there could be 10,000 or more people out there that know what it is. Just know what it is. Know that it exists. Know that it's an option. The odds that one of those people are going to sit on a jury someday, fully informed as a juror, and be told this person committed a crime, evaluate that crime, and say, that shouldn't even be a crime. And when the prosecutor's done with laying out their case, and that one juror just says, not guilty, and tells the other jurors, possibly even tells the other jurors, I'm voting not guilty because I don't think this should be a crime. And we don't have to. And it's, it's, it's constitutional. We are allowed to vote not guilty to nullify this law. The odds that you'll have at least one person get that opportunity and exercise it are pretty high. I think that makes a bigger difference than voting for the lesser of two evils. That's just one. I'll also tell you this: There's a guy named Ron Finley. Some of you guys are familiar with him. I've, I've featured him on the show before. I featured him on uh, Facebook and Twitter and blog posts. Uh, Ron Finley is a guerrilla gardener in Los Angeles who started planting gardens everywhere throughout Los Angeles, California, and that was illegal. he wasn't allowed to do it. He didn't vote. He didn't, you know, try to get the law changed. He just kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. And, doing it. and got a lot of people to go. We like this. This is awesome. And eventually, the law was changed because he wouldn't go away. And you didn't really want to be the guy that threw somebody in jail for planting tomatoes in the side of the street. And Rosa Parks didn't vote for her rights. She simply sat in the front seat of the bus. The greatest change, even if eventually voting made it happen, didn't start with voting. It started with actions by individuals. Individuals that started companies, built mentoring programs informed others, spread information, told people the truth, challenged beliefs, and in many cases ignored laws that others voted into place. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times be tough, or even if they don't.